Good morning. It's great to see all of you here today and everybody watching us at home. I'm so glad you're with us too. Uh, we are in Daniel chapter 6 today. I grew up in a home that was Christian. Uh, I was taken to church every time the doors were open. But even better than that, my parents taught me scripture themselves. Uh, my, my good night, my bedtime stories were Bible stories. So by the time I could read, I knew more Bible than most kids my age, more than a lot of adults. Uh, and if you would have asked little five or six year old me, what is your favorite Bible story? I'm not sure what I would have said, but it's quite likely it would have been the story we're going to look at today, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And if you would have asked me at that age, what is the point of the story of Daniel in the lion's den? What's the moral of the story? I probably would have said what most little kids would say, what most adults would say, which is the point of the story of Daniel in the lion's den is that if you're a good person, if you obey God, if you're true to him, he'll take care of you. People who obey God's commands are protected. And that does seem to be what this story teaches. By the way, if you've never heard this story, spoiler alert, Daniel gets saved from the lions, okay? So I hope I didn't ruin it for you. But that moral is actually not true. When we get to heaven, if we're able to look back through the eyes of God and see our life through his eyes and, and all that he did, and I think that's going to be the case, I think what we'll find is that God protected us from a lot of bad stuff, more than we possibly knew. But following God's commands does not exempt us from suffering. The most obedient, most righteous person who ever lived, Jesus, suffered like no one has ever suffered before. Obedience does not exempt you from hard times, from suffering, from trial, from trouble. Daniel, we've already seen, was a young man who was exceptionally devoted to God, and yet he and his friends were taken from their home. Their nation was invaded and destroyed. They were carried away to Babylon, where they lived the rest of their lives, serving a pagan kingdom. So his obedience did not result in a life that he wanted. That's not the way it works. And in fact, even the story we're going to look at today, Daniel in the lion's den, God did not save Daniel from the lion's den. He saved him out of the lion's den. Daniel had to actually go into that place of trial and fear and trauma in order to receive God's blessing, in order to receive that rescue. You know, sometimes, as Matt, Psalm 23 says, we have to go with God through the valley of the shadow of death. He's with us, but we don't get exempt from the valley. We have to walk through it. The most amazing thing about this story, I believe, is not that God saves Daniel from a den full of hungry lions. God can do that in his sleep. We just heard, we just sang the song. There's nothing our God can't do. The really amazing part of the story comes earlier in the story. We're about to read what I'm talking about in just a moment in verse 3. But first, let me give you a little bit of setup of what we're reading in the Scriptures Daniel has been working all this time for the Babylonian Empire. He's been a, an official in their government, but now he's got a new boss. If you were with us last week, you know that the Persians and the Medes uh, invaded, conquered Babylon. Now the, 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 the empire belongs to them. Darius is, is Daniel's new boss, and Darius has a new way of doing things. He has divided his empire, this vast massive empire into 120 different principalities. Each one is overseen by a different bureaucrat, and he called those bureaucrats satraps. 
Those 120 satraps are overseen by three administrators. They report to these three guys, and those three guys report to the king. Daniel happens to be one of the three. So he's one of the three most powerful people behind King Darius in the whole empire. His job, according to verse 2, is to make sure the king might suffer no loss. In other words, you make sure the 40 guys under your authority aren't cheating me in any way. I'm getting my share of taxes, my share of tribute, everything that I'm due. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So Daniel's about to get an even greater promotion. This will be the second time in his life that this has happened. Verse 4 says, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. Now let me explain what's going on here. See, back in ancient times, it was very common when something good happened to a person, when they achieved more than others, there was this thing in the ancient world called jealousy, where people would be envious of their accomplishment and would try to bring them down to their level to even the scales again. I know that doesn't exist in our world today, right? But it did back then. So Daniel is, he's in a, in a sticky spot. Imagine your worst enemies decide, I'm going to dig up some dirt on you. Do you think they'd find anything? They'd find some on me. What are they going to find on Daniel? It says, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So let me spell that out for you. They set their sights on Daniel. With all their resources, they cannot find one scrap of information they can use against him. He's never taken a bribe. He's never schemed against the king. He's never even spoken against the king behind his back. He's never used his position to punish people who he didn't like or to enrich himself. And to make it even more remarkable, Daniel is a high official in a national government. Now, I hate to say something cynical, but we've gotten used to the idea that if you are in a, in a high position in national government, you are corrupt. We just kind of take it for granted that, that you do things to benefit yourself. You use your position to, to bless yourself and, and, and to do whatever it takes to, uh, to do things in your own interest. In fact, in the past 25 years, both political parties separately at separate times have come out and said, you know, don't worry about our president's uh, private life, his, his morals, because that's just his personal life and just let him do his job. And we've gotten used to that idea. And yet here's Daniel who says character matters. And it's true. Character counts. Not just in high officials, it counts in us. When I say character, I mean the decisions you make, the words you say, your moral code and how you follow it counts. It matters. It matters more than anything about you other than your personal beliefs about God. Your character counts, and I'm here to tell you why. If you're a young person, if you're a teenager, if you're a, a young adult, and you're, you decide right now, I'm going to devote my life to being the person God created me to be. Yes, it'd be great if I earn a good salary. Yes, it'd be wonderful if I get married and raise a happy family. It'd be, it'd be great if I get to the top of whatever uh, career field I choose. All that's fine, but what's more important to me is that I become the person God created me to be, that my character more and more every day matches the character of Jesus. If that becomes the heartbeat of your life, if that becomes what you're devoted to, you're going to 
that's a decision you're going to be so glad of later because you're going to avoid so many terrible decisions people make when they're young. So many awful decisions that just torpedo your future, you'll, you'll just steer right past those because you've chosen to put character first. If you're on the other end of the spectrum, you're toward the end of your life and you're thinking about what am I going to leave to my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, let me just tell you, your character is a greater legacy than anything financial you can leave behind. Don't get me wrong. If you've been smart with your money and you're able to leave a, a financial inheritance to your kids, they'll be blessed with it, but it's more than, more than a little bit likely they'll blow it all, right? That can go away in a heartbeat. But if, on the other hand, they can say, my mom, my grandma, my grandfather always put God first, always tried to do what was right in his eyes, was led by the Holy Spirit, that is a tremendous legacy. And when you get to people like me who are in our middle years, we need to recognize this is prime time for compromise. And I'm going to talk in more detail about this at the end of the message, but this is the time when people make terrible choices, people who've done things for the most part the right way, all of a sudden let down and, and shipwreck their lives. So now is the time. Now is not the time to, uh, to rest, morally speaking, or in terms of discipleship. Now is the time to gird up your character and to brace those areas of weakness. If you're a parent, you're trying to raise kids, this is the hardest job you'll ever have. It's also the best job you'll ever have. But your character is the most important thing you can pass on to your kids. It's the most important factor in how you raise them. And I know we want to get our kids into the right schools and we want to set them up with a, a lifestyle that is better than what we had growing up. And that's all well and good. But even if you can't give your kids everything that the Joneses next door are able to do, if you present before them a life that they can emulate, a character they can, they can seek to grow into and admire, then those are wealthy kids. I don't care what anybody says or what your bank balance indicates. On the other hand, if you're not living it out... You can't raise moral kids because kids are hypocrisy detectors. They can sniff out phoniness a mile away, especially in their parents. So don't even try to lay down the law unless you're willing to live it. Character matters. But character does not mean a trouble-free life. Notice, Daniel's rivals can't find anything to accuse him of, but they can still bring him down because they say, here's what we'll do. We'll set up a scenario where Daniel has to choose between his faith and his well-being, and we're pretty sure he'll choose his faith, and then we'll get rid of him because he's consistent. So what they do is they talk King Darius into implementing a new law that says for a month, starting now, no one in the empire is allowed to pray to any god. If you got a need, come to me. Next 30 days, just, just show yourself, just, just teach yourself that I'm the king now, not Nebuchadnezzar, not any of those other Babylonian emperors. It's me. So just don't pray. Come to me for 30 days. I don't know why Darius would sign such a foolish order. Maybe he's trying to make sure that the, his new uh, citizens are actually loyal to him. Maybe he just, like a lot of leaders, says, you know, I've got other things on my plate. This is why I hire people to write laws for me so I don't have to think about those things. He signs his name. One of the quirks of the Persian legal system is that once a law was signed into effect, it could not be repealed, not even by the king himself. If you know the story of Esther, that also takes place in the land of Persia about a generation after Daniel, and it's the same situation. The same law comes into play. So Daniel hears that it is now illegal to pray. What's he going to do? 
Verse 10 tells us, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. See, godly character is consistent. It doesn't just do the right thing when it's convenient. It doesn't just trust in God when it's easy. It's all the time. And you might say, well, Daniel could have just prayed in his closet. He didn't have to stand there or kneel there in an open doorway. But Daniel was in the practice of doing it that way. Why? We don't know. I'm assuming Daniel prayed facing Jerusalem with his doors open because it was his way of saying, I'm a high official in the kingdom of of Babylon and now in Persia, but I still worship the God of my fathers. I still worship the God whose temple was in Jerusalem, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says to himself, I'm not going to stop doing what I believe is right, even though I'm going to get into trouble doing it. So of course, Daniel's enemies catch him. They knew he would do it. He did it. They caught him. They run straight to the king. And they say, your boy Daniel, the one you were going to promote, he the ink isn't even dry on the law you just signed, and he's already breaking it. So what does the king do? Verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. And this shows you, which is very unusual, the affection that this man had for Daniel. You know, normally a man as powerful as Darius wouldn't care about any of his underlings. They were just there to suit his needs. He has grown fond of Daniel. And you think about it, Darius is 62, Daniel's probably in his mid to late 80s, so maybe it's sort of a father figure relationship. This is someone I trust, someone I can look to as a mentor. Or maybe it's just the fact that this guy's the best employee I have, and I know I can trust him, and I don't know that I can trust anybody else. But either way, Darius is really disturbed, and he tries his best to see if he can get Daniel off, to to keep Daniel from being killed. We don't know what steps he takes. Maybe he consults with attorneys to see if there's a loophole in the law. Or maybe he talks to engineers and says, is there some way to make Daniel lion-proof when we throw him in there? But finally, the sun starts to set, and that's when the sentence has to be carried out. And even Darius is not powerful enough to stop it. And so picture this man in his late 80s, dragged down the street, thrown into this pit, a big, heavy stone rolled in front of the mouth of that opening, and he's sealed inside. And inside, he, he sees nothing but darkness and hears the sound of those un, uh, hungry lions rumbling all around him. And Darius, all he can do is say, Oh, Daniel, may the, king, may the God who you serve night and day protect you. He goes back to his, his room in the palace and he cancels supper and he cancels all his evening's entertainment and he cancels all his meetings and he just lays there in bed thinking and probably praying and hoping and waiting for the sun to rise. Because at the break of day, he's got to get down there and just see if there's, if there's even a chance that Daniel's God has protected him. And so verse 19 picks up the story. Then at break of day, The king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. 
So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. And I got to tell you, when my mom was telling me this story when I was a little kid, she didn't include that detail. But if she had, I would have thought it was really cool. But I want you to notice two things about this story. Number one. Darius refers to the Lord as the living God. It's interesting, these people who didn't grow up believing in Yahweh, what they learned to call him. Nebuchadnezzar, you remember when he came to believe in God, what did he call him? He called him the God of heaven. Darius calls him the living God. Why? The Bible doesn't tell us why. I have a theory. My theory is, and by the way, keep in mind, Darius at this point when he's saying these words has not yet seen any miracles. Not as far as we know. He wasn't around when Nebuchadnezzar threw the the three boys into the fiery furnace and they came out unharmed. He wasn't there when Daniel was interpreting dreams. He hadn't even heard. He hasn't seen these miracles yet, but he has seen Daniel's life. And I think what he's saying is, I've been all over this world. I've conquered country after country, and every time I conquer a country, I get to know their gods. And what I've learned is all the gods of all the countries are just wood, and stone, and gold, and silver. But Daniel's God is real. Daniel's God is alive. Because I've never seen anybody live like he lives. He's devoted to his God, and it has given him an excellent spirit. I've never seen one, someone live like this. Keep in mind, y'all, character is not just saying no to some bad things. It's not just avoiding certain vices. It's not just not drinking, and cussing, and chewing. And go in this with girls that doing, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's something compelling. It's a life that draws people in. There's grace to it. There's love to it. There's forgiveness. There's humility. There's courage. There's compassion. Character is the picture of Jesus Christ. And think about how sinful people were drawn to Jesus. They couldn't get enough of him. That's character. Darius says, this is the living God. And he goes further than that. He, he writes an edict. This is the other thing I want you to see. He writes a new law, a law that says, from this point forward, everyone in our empire is to give praise and glory to the God of Daniel. And that edict goes out to all 120 principalities and provinces, states and counties, And millions of people read it. I want you to think about this for a moment. Daniel was taken from his home when he was a young teenager. Absolute victim. Powerless. Made a eunuch in the king, in the court of the king. And yet, he goes from that to spreading the message of his God to millions of people who never would have heard of Yahweh if not for Daniel. And that's what we're called to do. We live in a culture where most people don't believe what we believe, where most people think what we believe is ridiculous, even harmful, and yet our job is not to survive and hold on to what we have. Our job is to represent God so well that we make a difference in the lives of others. And I'm not saying all of us are going to be Daniel and millions of people are going to hear about God through us. That's that's not necessarily your calling, but you are around people every day of your life who need to know that God is alive, that He's real. His name is Jesus Christ. That's our job, to represent him so well. 
with such character that people are drawn to him. Now, how do we build that kind of character? It doesn't come naturally. Nobody's born this way. Some people are raised in in really loving and and character-building homes, and they've got an advantage, but they can't live this way, not just based on their raising. No, it takes a couple of things I know. It takes time in the presence of God. You've got to walk beside him. You've got to spend time in prayer. You've got to spend time in the Word. You've got to set aside time to be with him. And it's not just Sunday mornings. It also requires a repentant heart. Imagine if your worst enemies were able to gain access to everything about you, your, your money, your, your decisions, your relationships, even your thoughts. What kind of dirt would they dig up on you? I mean, I know this is a terrible thought experiment to perform. It's very uh, degrading to think of. But come up with that list in your mind and then take it before the Lord. Something that's been very helpful to me is to do that, is to have this list. Here are character qualities where I know I need God to change me. And so I pray, like I told you last week, I pray for boldness because that's not something I naturally have. I pray for courage. I pray for wisdom. I pray for patience. I pray for humility. I pray for several other things. Do you have your list? That's a repentant heart coming before God and saying, I don't just want you to forgive me. I want you to change me. Do that every day of your life. But I have to say this, building godly character is not something you do when you're young and you get to a certain point and you say, I've made it. Building godly character is a lifelong pursuit. Whether you're nine or 99, you still got to work. You still got to trust in God. I'm I'm reminded of something that a seminary professor said in a class that I took when I was in my early 30s. This little classroom of about 10 or 12 guys, about all about the same age, And he said, he said, guys, be careful when you get older and you're tempted to relax and you're tempted to say, you know, I've always been above board in all my relationships with women, but now I can afford to flirt. I'm an old guy now. Everybody thinks it's harmless and I can flirt with these, with these women who are half my age, young enough to be my daughter and, and and nobody will think anything of it. I don't want it to go anywhere. I just, I just think it'll be fun. And you start with the, with the little jokes and the little cracks about how she looks and what she's wearing. And, oh boy, if I were 20 years younger, you'd be in big trouble. And, and there's the, the unsolicited hugs and the arm around the shoulder and the hand on the knee. And, and if, you, if you talk to your wife, she's not going to say anything because she doesn't want to be a nag, but it makes her feel terrible. It makes her feel like dirt. If you talk to this young woman, she's not going to say anything because she doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but she thinks you're a creepy old man. And the real danger is that you meet one of these young women who's so insecure that she actually responds to it in a way that gratifies you. And that's how you start down that path where a marriage ends, where kids who used to look up to you don't talk to you anymore, Where a young person just beginning her life has her life ruined, and you do too. And all because you said, eh, I've worked hard enough. I don't need to work on this anymore. And and I was in my early 30s when that was said. And I remember that very moment looking around the room and going, we're all a bunch of young guys. Why aren't you telling us this? There's no way we're going to remember this when we get old. Not that we're ever going to get old, right? You don't think you're ever going to be old when you're 31, 32, And yet here I am, older, and it's still stuck in there. I think God 
kept it there and is keeping it there because he was like, this is something you need to hear, Mr. Berger. And it's something y'all need to hear. And you may say, well, I'm not male and I'm not older. and I'm, you know, It doesn't matter. We can all make the same decision, the same mistake. I've seen teenagers who were straight as an arrow all of a sudden decide, you know, my rebellious rule-breaking friends are having all the fun. I think I'm going to go have some fun with them. And then consequences come crashing down on them that they never foresaw. I've seen young adults who had families that they genuinely loved, but ruin all of that for just a few moments of pleasure that they look back on with absolute disgust for the rest of their lives. I've seen people who worked for years at the same company, were trusted, and then decided, I need a little something for me, and ruin their careers, ruin their lives, their reputations. It can happen to any of us. But even that's not the reason why we work on our character. You want to know why we work on our character? It's not because of the consequences that happen when we make bad bad choices. It's not because, please hear me, it's not because only good people get into heaven. If that were the case, none of us would make it. Because good is Jesus Christ and none of us come close. No, the reason why we work on godly character is because there was a day when God himself came down to earth in the form of a man named Jesus. We're going to celebrate it in our Lord's Supper in just a moment. And he took on human flesh. And they threw him into a pit just as well, a pit of death. And they rolled a stone over it just like with Daniel. And they sealed him inside, but he arose. There was no angel to protect him. He died, but he arose. And he came out bearing healing in his wings with life eternal and abundant for everyone who will trust in him and follow him. And so when we trust in him, we get credit for his character. He lived a perfect life. We didn't. And yet we get treated like we are perfect by the God of of heaven, by the living God. And not only that, but he's given us this brand new life, this fresh start and this power to become made new, to become brand new people in his image, every day we walk, walk, walk alongside him, we become a little more like him because of the power that raised him from the dead. And that's what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper. And that's why we walk that journey with him. It started in that pit and leads to a new earth and a new us.